I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'd like to highlight some content from the December edition of the journal. I'd like to start with an article which discusses improving recognition of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a life-limiting muscle-wasting disorder that typically presents with delayed or disordered motor or speech development and muscle weakness. The last few decades have seen improved standards of care and new therapeutic approaches. Corticosteroid treatment, nocturnal ventilation and cardiac support with significantly improved clinical outcomes and life expectancy. However, the condition, X-linked, 1 in 4,000, tends to be diagnosed late, which has a negative impact on the potential for genetic counselling and recruitment into clinical trials. In this issue, Van Ruten and colleagues investigate the diagnostic process in 20 children diagnosed over a 10-year period as a useful way of investigating the cause of and potential strategies that might impact on diagnostic delay. The results are of great interest. The age at first reported symptoms, 32 months, with a range of 8 to 72. Age at first engagement with a health professional, 42 months. Creatinine kinase levels checked at 50 months. And diagnosis confirmed at 51 months. It is true that the age at diagnosis is less than reported previously, although there are still very significant delays in presentation and in investigation following presentation. The authors advocate screening as part of the two-year developmental check and promote the mnemonic muscle, motor milestone delay, unusual gait, speech delay, CK as soon as possible, leads to earlier diagnosis of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. The findings are discussed in an accompanying editorial and certainly the reader will conclude that earlier diagnosis of Duchenne muscular dystrophy is essential to improve long-term outcomes. The second article I'd like to highlight relates to why do parents litigate and what does it do for the family. So litigation, very frightening and something that we all hope that we won't be exposed to. The annual cost to the NHS of litigation was more than £1 billion in 2012. A significant component of that was paid to claimants in brain damage at birth litigation. In this issue, Lewis Rosenblum, who has prepared about 5,000 reports looking at causation of brain damage and disability, gives his perspective based on his extensive experience of why parents litigate. It's a really interesting article to work through and gives us a perspective on the issues that these families face and the importance of specifics. These include what, so exactly what, happened to cause brain damage in their child. They include how to stop this happening to other children, how to ensure the child is properly cared for, including into adult life, to obtain retribution against perceived errors and to respond to pressures from family or other agencies and deal with the unexpected discovery of possible fault. Clearly financial compensation is a major factor and is relevant to all of the above. 
The issues listed, however, are often difficult to address with families, and this article reminds us of the importance of at least trying to address some of them, particularly what has happened to cause brain damage in their child, and to deal with specifics, and to do this in order to help families come to terms with and deal with the reality of caring for a disabled child long term. The third article I'd like to highlight this month relates to toxic shock syndrome. Toxic shock syndrome is an acute toxin-mediated illness caused by toxin-producing strains of Staphylococcus aureus and Streptococcus pyogenes. Risk factors for toxic shock syndrome include chickenpox, burns and tampon use. In this issue, Adelat and colleagues report 49 children that's BPSU surveillance data collected between November 2008 and December 2009. And they estimate an overall incidence of toxic shock syndrome of 0.38 per 100,000. This clearly may be an underestimate as a consequence of underreporting, or at least only the most severe phenotype being recognised and reported. 29 of the 49 were likely secondary to streptococcal infection, 18 of whom were confirmed, 20 were secondary to staphylococcal disease, 15 of whom were confirmed. The children with staphylococcal toxic shock syndrome were generally older and most required intensive care support. Agents with antitoxin effects were used, although not in all, that's clindamycin in 67%, IVIG in 20%. There were eight deaths, all in the streptococcal group, none had received IVIG. This high proportion of streptococcal toxic shock syndrome and higher mortality rate are highlighted by the authors who emphasise the need for an agreed guideline to improve management in children. Nigel Curtis in an accompanying editorial discusses toxic shock syndrome under-recognised, under-treated. The fourth article I'd like to highlight relates to common visual problems in children with disability. We have previously covered this topic relating to the under-screening and under-treatment of visual disturbances in children with disability. This review helps the reader to understand the issues and the practical strategies that can be put in place. There is a high prevalence of visual problems in children with disability. In a comprehensive review, Alison Salt and Jennifer Sargent discuss the etiology, including risk factors such as preterm birth, cerebral palsy, learning difficulty, syndromal disorders and primary visual impairment. And they offer a comprehensive approach to their identification, assessment and management, highlighting the need for better screening and better service provision for children with visual impairment and neurodisability. This is a really important article to read. Many of us deal with children with complex neurodisability and it's important to be aware and react on the fact that in that group of patients there's often undiagnosed and therefore undertreated visual disturbance which if better managed might impact on their at quality of life and outcome long term. I'd like to finish with an article on propranolol for infantile hemangioma. 
Propranolol has become first-line treatment for complex infantile hemangiomas. In this issue, Solman and colleagues report their experience of treating 250 children, 34 of whom were preterm, who completed at least three months of therapy. Indications included visual compromise, airway obstruction, feeding difficulty, risk of permanent disfigurement. Median age at start of treatment was 4.5 months and medium length of treatment was 11.8 months. 96% responded well to therapy. 20 patients experienced regrowth off treatment and 6 required propranolol to be restarted. 38, that's 15.2%, experienced side effects, mostly mild, including wheeze, worsening of ulceration, sleep disturbance and diarrhoea, requiring modification of treatment in 26. This has been a very significant development in the management of complex infantile hemangioma, and these data confirm that propranolol is safe and effective and appropriate to use in selected cases, safe and effective and appropriate to use in selected cases in whom there are complications. The paper includes detail on the indications, potential toxicity, practicalities of use. It's modified based on their experience and includes a helpful treatment protocol. I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please refer to the journal website for the full content of the papers discussed. Thanks for listening.